Part 10 of The Blue Review, Volume 1, Issue 2, edited by John Middleton Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Poetry by Lascelles Abercrombie Thou hast made me endless, such is thy pleasure. It is hard to keep clear of the critical King Cambyses's vein when one has to write about Rabindranath Tagore's Gitanjali, Macmillan, four shillings and sixpence net. Thou hast made me endless. Yes, that is the danger. It is, I suppose, one of the paradoxes of aesthetics that poetry, when it achieves a perfect formality, when form and impulse are inevitably related, has the power of causing a notable sense of complete liberation from all the formality of consciousness. Thou hast made me endless. Life can get nothing better than these moments. They belong to Dionysus, but they are unexpressive. The making of great poetry is a transformation of Dionysus into Apollo, but the reading of great poetry is a transformation of Apollo back into Dionysus, and Dionysus untransformed is still less the god of criticism than he is of poetry. He is, however, the god of King Cambyses's vein, which, as a good European, I am bound to detest above everything. As a precaution against him, to give him time for settling down into the everyday formality of thought, I shall speculate a little about the significance of Gitanjali outside of art. For Tagore's work belongs to world politics, as well as to poetry. As I read his own exquisite prose translation of his songs, I seem to have jumped right over that formidable clash, which is, or ought to be, at the back of everybody's mind, the coming clash of East and West. I seem to have landed magically in its serene and triumphant conclusion. All the great original civilizations of the world, including the one on whose bequests we are still living, have resulted from the East fusing somehow with the West. And always it has been the East that supplied impulse, Dionysus, the West that supplied form, Apollo. For the resulting triumph of vitality, each was as necessary as the other. Now this seems to me exactly what has happened afresh in Gitanjali. The book is not only noble poetry, it is a new civilization. This is why it is so incomprehensibly surprising. When one is talking of poetry, Dionysus and Apollo will always come in very conveniently as figures of speech. This is how I was using them just now. But in Gitanjali they have become gods once more. Profound impulse from the East and a masterful formality from the West have joined together to create a new perfection of conscious life. This, at any rate, is how I read the book, and there seems no doubt that it actually is a joint product of East and West. Rabindranath Tagore's family has long been conspicuous for its efforts to Europeanize India, or Indianize Europe, whichever you prefer. His father took a great part in establishing the Brahma Samaj, an eclectic theistic religion, which appears to have deliberately attempted to compound the formal thought of the West with Indian spiritual intuition. I believe it has had an immense influence. But the real result of the Brahma Samaj is the songs of Rabindranath Tagore, which have penetrated the whole of Indian life. I may be hunting a Kimara, 
but really this seems to me extraordinarily significant compare the songs with almost any other eastern poetry and you will see what i mean eastern poetry however means for most of us i suppose fitzgerald's omar and the comparison here will not be so striking for fitzgerald tampered as they say with his original in fact he turned it into a european poem read a literal translation of omar and you will see that fitzgerald gave to his original just that which is so noticeably supreme in gitangeli he gave its form but hafiz will show how tagore differs from typical oriental lyrics no one can miss the puissance of impulse in hafiz but i imagine that most europeans would agree that it is impossible to read hafiz with any comfort not even in a reading that so admirably suggests the external form as walter leaf's translation what disturbs us is the complete lack of internal form agreeing with the external orientalists of course admit this they say persian poetry and it is evidently true of eastern poetry in general gets its unity and only professes to get it from an extraordinarily strict externality of form the spirit within the poetry is free that is merely to say the spirit is shapeless and as long as greece lives in europe we are not likely to be satisfied with shapeless spirit however shapely the substance may be a more familiar instance doubtless would be the canticles and their purport is very close to that of gitangeli the inspiration of the canticles is as sublime as anything in poetry but it is utterly shapeless it is ungoverned dionysus has not contrived to turn into apollo and that is just what he has contrived to do in gitangeli i certainly should not compare the inspiration of this book with the depth and splendour of the inspiration of hafiz or the canticles it does not seem like theirs a rage from the very heart of life it is finer more delicate more wistful decidedly less profound but all the same compared with modern european poetry it amazingly seems to have behind it the pressure of vast reservoirs of vitality no doubt this comes from the immense force of indian religion the thing is however that this elemental kind of inspiration has been mastered into complete formality as shapely and exquisite as anything in the whole range of european lyric and i think considering the facts of the milieu in which gitangeli originated we may truly call this formality western but whether this be so or not it makes tagore's poetry of the same nature as the poetry of sappho or simonides wordsworth or heine and here is the amazing thing this without ceasing to be altogether oriental and indian the translation of gitangeli gives us of course no notion of the external form of these songs but it must certainly be something beautiful beauty of external form by no means compels the spirit within to be shapely it may easily be free or shapeless but soul is form and doth the body make when the soul is form when thought and mood have such superb shapeliness as they have in gitangeli the body cannot refuse obedience to it it is possible that the brahma samaj and by that i mean contamination of east and west may be responsible for tagore's noble mingling of mystical aspiration with a profound and delighted acceptance of life 
Probably this is simply the result of Tagore's genius, for mysticism in Europe has always been just as inclined to deny life as mysticism in the East. In any case, the quality is one of the chief things in what Mr. Ransom would call the kinetic of the book, in what it sets out to say. But I shall not attempt the futility of describing what Jitanjali is like. In the bounty and glow and simplicity of its imagery, it is as if it discovers vitality itself. But it is more than a deep flux of vitality. It is vitality daring to hold itself in a supreme consciousness. The forces of its inspiration have made themselves into lucid formality, like the forces that build crystals. And therefore, it is a poetry that can easily and as equally speak of strange and remote experiences of the spirit as of the divine lusts of the senses. Just because, I believe, it promises a new civilization, but promises it in the old way, in another fusion of the spiritual energy of the East with the mental formality of the West. Just because of this, it is a poetry which once more achieves the condition towards which all poetry is forever straining. It is a perfection of conscious life. Well, I hope I have avoided King Cambyses's vein. I am not quite sure but I shall have no difficulty in keeping clear of it for the rest of this article. Not that Gitangeli, as an earnest of future wonders, need make us desperate about the present. We are not doing so badly ourselves. After Tagore's Indian dream, we need not cry to dream again. Indeed, if we had several books like Mr. D. H. Lawrence's love poems, Duckworth, Four Shillings and Sixpence Net, I should certainly have to say that we are doing astonishingly well. But though Mr. Macefield's Dorber, Heinemann, three shillings and sixpence net, has appeared in book form, Mr. Lawrence's poems stand by themselves among recent books for justifiable daring. Dorber seems to me the least successful of Mr. Macefield's narratives, chiefly because only a rattling good story could justify a poem of such length and the story is a very poor affair. It is false in psychology and false in sentiment. The hero's death ought to have been significant, but I cannot help suspecting that Mr. Macefield, having turned his hero at last into a decent sort of chap, killed him because he did not know what to do with him. Even so, however, there are several pages of incomparable description and continual lightning flashes of splendid phrasing but I do not like having to praise Mr. Macefield only for the ornament of his poetry. I cannot find much to say either about Mr. Hewlett's Helen Redeemed, Macmillan, Four Shillings and Sixpence Net, or Mr. William Watson's The Muse in Exile. Since Mr. Hewlett published Artemisian, his verse seems to have been trying hard to recapture the qualities which enabled that delightful book to do something considerable towards the poetic recreation of Greek legend. One cannot but admire the determined Hellenism of this confirmed romantic. Only in one poem in this latest book of his, Ignatho, can I find anything comparable with the keen phrasing and vivid conception of Artemisian. The rest is what you might expect from the industry of a romantic trying to be a Hellenist. Of Mr. Watson's The Muse in Exile, Jenkins' Three Shillings and Sixpence Net, I will not say anything at all. I have too much respect for Mr. Watson's past. 
Miss Emilia Stuart Lorimer's Songs of Alban, Constable, Three Shillings and Sixpence Net, is another book I must pass by. Her writing is evidently quite alive, but I find it difficult to enjoy poetry which I cannot understand, and there is very little of Miss Lorimer's which I can understand. So I am left with Mr. Lawrence's love poems. There is novelty here, but the right sort of novelty. It is poetry realising things afresh. If realist were not a word abominably misused, it would be the word for Mr. Lawrence's poems. I do not care very much for his rhythms. The daring seems to be really a fear of being conventional. Though sometimes, as when he uses monosyllabic feet, they are obviously effective. To a gone and given his white young flesh to a woman that coarse. And the love in his love poems is rather too monotonously the bitter-sweet, impracticable adder. But Mr. Lawrence has an admirable power of liberating the concealed meaning of words, and an equally admirable power of unexpected but truthful association. These lines give an instance of both these qualities. A grey-pale light, like must, that settled upon my face and hands, till it seemed to flourish there, as pale mould blooms on a crust. The choice of the word flourish marks Mr. Lawrence as a poet. And a sinister dawn is captured with curious assurance by the suggestion, physical as well as emotional, of mould. Such detail as this Mr. Lawrence uses for the patient, elaborate, and extraordinarily economical fixation of a sequence of moods, which, for all that they are somewhat monotonous, are so concentrated into poetry that they are quite irresistible. But remarkable as these love poems are, Mr. Lawrence works with less effort and to clearer result in the sharp psychology and vigorously restrained wordplay of the dialect poems at the end of his book. End of part 10